Today's reading is taken from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, and that can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1196. That's 1196. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Thanks be to God. Good morning. And uh, do please keep your Bibles open on, uh, was it page 1196, uh, on 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, I'll just get that set. Was that right? Yep, 1196, 2 Timothy, chapter 2. I'll pray, and then let's hear God's word. Father God, once again, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you love us enough to say things that aren't always easy, uh, that you love us enough to tell us the truth, to give us what we need. And so we pray this morning that each of us would hear and we would obey. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a, a question to start with, uh, which, a rhetorical question, don't have to shout out. But my question is, when do you think, is it right to call out false teachers? That is, when is it right to say of someone who is presenting themselves as a Christian teacher, when is it right to say of them that person 
is not teaching the true gospel. That person is teaching a false gospel. That person is dangerous and you need to keep away from them. Or possibly slightly more subtly, when is it right to say to the person themselves, to say to someone in some kind of teaching role, what you are teaching is false and you need to stop teaching that and you need to repent and you need to change your message. And the reason we would say that they need to repent, that they need to stop teaching that, is because salvation is on the line for the sake of their own salvation, the false teacher's salvation, and for the sake of others. And so, in some ways, in thinking about that question, when is it right to say of someone they're teaching a false gospel, we're having a think about Steve's job. Uh, so Steve, our vicar, uh, when is it his job to say that about other people? When is it his job to warn us as a congregation against false teachers and false teaching? You see, we're going to see today that Paul thinks that a key part of his job and therefore a key part of Timothy's job, the man who he is handing over his ministry to, knowing that Paul himself is going to die soon, that a key part of his job and Timothy's job is pointing out false teachers and warning his congregations against them. Uh, Our our chapter began, our, our passage rather began, verse 14, Paul writes, keep reminding them of these things. Slightly obscure beginning, so we've got two questions. Who is them and what are these things? Keep reminding them of these things. Well, if you're you're with me on this, then um, turn back just one page to uh, verse 2. And Paul says there to Timothy, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So the them in verse 14 remind them of these things is those guys, i.e. the guys that Timothy is then teaching to follow in his footsteps. So Paul has taught Timothy and said, follow my pattern, and Timothy is then to teach others and to say to them, and follow in my footsteps, follow my life and my doctrine, teach the same things. And then those men were to teach others who were to teach others who were to teach others, who were to teach others over the last 2,000 years, which brings us down to guys like Steve, who look after churches today, standing in that line of Paul's and Timothy's. So this passage, the application of this passage, is not primarily to most of us. It's primarily, first and foremost, to people like Steve. But we'll see there are also direct kind of implications of that for us as well. Because what if we need to say to a friend of ours, perhaps a friend who goes to a different church, or a friend who goes here, but we know that they're listening to some teaching which is not good teaching, when might we need to say to someone else, what you believe is false, and what you're listening to, if you follow it, will lead you away from Jesus, and your very salvation is in danger? Because that is what we're dealing with. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Everything that frames this book is that picture of heaven, of salvation, of going to be with Jesus forever, of eternal life. And so to lose that salvation is to lose heaven, is to lose eternity with God. So that is what is on the line. We are dealing with eternal issues. 
But to say that kind of thing to someone, what you're believing is dangerous, is really risky, isn't it? It's really risky for our friendship with them. It's really risky for our relationship, for, for how easy that relationship's going to be. Because most of us don't like to be labelled as divisive, um, which is another way of saying most of us don't like to suffer. We like people to like us. We like people to think well of us. And to be fair, some people can be too divisive, can't they? Some people can be always in there, always looking to start a fight, always looking to start a, a controversy. They seem to thrive on it. And we definitely don't want to be going over to that camp. People who are always critical. People who are greatly concerned for truth, they would like to think, but not greatly concerned about love. Whereas the Christian message should always be truth in love. So the them of verse 14 is faithful teachers, by extension, guys leading churches, and we'll see the implications for us. What are the things, what are the these things of which Timothy is supposed to remind them? Well, it's everything that Paul said in verses 3 to 13. And so to summarize that very quickly, because that was last week's sermon, and we had those illustrations of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, three professions which involve hard work now, and you only get the reward or the glory later. The soldier only gets glory if he gets it after the battle is done. The farmer only gets the crop at harvest time. The athlete only gets the prize at the end of the race. And before then, the training, the working, the fighting, it's hard work, but the reward comes later. And the same in the Christian life. Paul says that the Christian life can be hard work, but it's worth it because the promise of life in Christ Jesus is coming. And that principle of hard work now, but it's worth it for our sake and also for the sake of the salvation of others, that principle of hard work now but reward later also applies to the defining command of this passage. The key command is this, verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Even in the phrase he uses there, the word he uses describing Timothy's job as being like a workman, not a kind of ivory tower academic just whiling away the day in abstract philosophical speculation, but a workman, a hard worker over the truth. What does it mean to correctly handle the word of truth? It means to strive, to work hard, to teach God's word faithfully, to understand it faithfully and teach it faithfully, which means saying no more and no less than what God has said. We don't go beyond God's word and say more, but we don't shrink back from it and say less if we happen not to like what he has said. The job of the teacher is simply to say God's word, no more, and no less. And this little section is all about words, from verse 14 all the way through. Warn them before God, verse 14, against quarreling about words. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter. Uh, we're told in verse 18 of these guys who've wandered away from the truth. Uh, in verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. They produce quarrels. Don't quarrel, but instead teach gently instruct a knowledge of the truth. All about truth and words, all the way through this whole section. Those who teach from the front in church 
are not to come up with their own ideas. If preachers have something worth hearing, if they do, if we do, it's not because the preacher is cleverer than anyone else. They only have something worth saying if they are correctly handling God's words. A couple of years back at the uh, Evangelical Ministry Assembly, a big, con- uh, big um, conference of ministers that meets in the Barbican, Mike Kane, a vicar from down in Bristol, uh, told the story of, um, of meeting up with some other vicars at their local deanery synod meeting, a little meeting of vicars. And uh, one of the others came up to him and said, oh, I, I hear you're one of these, these evangelicals and that, that you preach for half an hour every week. How on earth do you come up with new things to say every week? And Mike said, well, yeah, because if you have the view of the Bible that this vicar had, that it's not really God's word and we can pick and choose and you can just say what you want on a Sunday, then how do you come up with new stuff every week? Whereas, as most of you know, you know, if you look at the Bible and pay attention to what it says, then both Steve and I find it very hard to keep to 20 minutes on a Sunday, which is what we aim for, because there's so much in God's word that we can say that's worth saying, that's worth hearing. And some of us have sat under the kinds of ministries where actually nothing is really said on a Sunday. Uh, the church that I went to growing up, the first vicar that we had for uh, the first sort of 15 years or so, fantastic uh, vicar, great teacher. And then we had a, uh, someone who came in and he slightly kind of misled the church in interviews and so he ended up coming into the church as the vicar. He didn't actually last that long. But I remember walking home after church. I was in my late teens with my mum and, uh, and, and she'd sometimes say, so what do you think that sermon was about this morning? And I'd say, to be honest, I'm not really sure he said anything. And mum was like, oh, what a relief. I thought it was just me. And some of us have sat under ministries like that. But some of us have also sat under ministries where God's word is faithfully taught and it's changed our lives. So when I first moved to London, when I came to university here and I went to, um, incidentally, Big St. Helens, the other side of town, originally I was very skeptical. I kind of sat there week by week and thought, man, you guys are a little bit, little bit over serious about this. You're taking this all a bit too much, you know, chill out a bit. But week by week, drip by drip, as God's word was taught, actually I realized this made sense of the world far better than the sort of secular, liberal, agnostic, atheist ideas that I'd imbibed from the culture. It made more sense than the Buddhist ideas or the Muslim ideas or the Hindu ideas of my friends at university. That God's word alone explains God's world. And that makes sense. If he made it, it's going to be his word that explains it. So what does it mean to correctly handle the word of truth? It means to strive to work hard to say no more and no less than what God has said in his word, the Bible. Well, why make such a big deal out of that? Well, read with me verses 17 and 18. Paul writes of the false teachers, their teaching will spread like gangrene. You know, gangrene, it can kind of get into a cut and then it spreads through. And if you get gangrene in one of your limbs, they cut your limb off to stop the gangrene spreading through your body and killing you. That's how serious it is. And Paul says that is what false teaching is like. It spreads and it kills. And then Paul names a couple of false teachers. Again, verse 17, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. 
They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Well, at the beginning I said, when is it right to name false teachers? Well, Paul presumably thought that the time was right here because he names Hymenaeus and Philetus, which is extra harsh because we've still got their names 2,000 years later. We know that these guys were a bit, you know, not, 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 good, not good guys. Um, why is he so harsh again? Because they are, end of verse 18, destroying the faith of some. What does it mean to destroy someone's faith? It means to take away the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to destroy their hope of eternal life, meaning that those who believed the false gospel of Hymenaeus and Philetus would not attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, we don't get told exactly what this heresy was, but we get told there in verse 18, slightly confusingly, that they were saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, initially that might seem confusing. Um, They are not saying Jesus' resurrection has already happened. Obviously, if they were just saying that, Paul would have been fine with it. Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul teaches that very clearly. Probably what they were saying, we know that there was a heresy going around in this time, that they were teaching that the resurrection had already happened in us spiritually, and there was no further resurrection in the future, that this life was all that there is, that this is where we could experience full blessing in this life now, perhaps full health now, or wealth now, or full blessing now. And that might sound possibly quite familiar to many of us, because that is basically the ancient ancestor of the prosperity gospel teaching that is so prevalent in our world again today. You might have heard of teachers like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, or Donald Trump's favorite teacher, Paula White, who are all teachers of the prosperity gospel, that if you just have enough faith, then you can never be ill. You can have full health now. You can have full wealth now. You can have all the prosperity that you need. God will give you a maximally blessed life. All you need is enough faith and normally to send in money to those teachers. It's the descendant of what Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching, and it's the complete opposite of what we've already seen Paul teaching in this book. Paul has said that the Christian life is a hard race. It is a difficult race, that it's hard work now and that the blessing comes primarily later. Yes, there are good things, wonderful things about the Christian life, many blessings, but they are not primarily physical blessings. Now, God can heal, and it is not wrong to pray for healing. And God does provide for our needs, and it is not wrong to pray for our needs to be met. I think it probably is going too far to pray for a Lamborghini or a private jet or a mansion. But that's pretty much what some of these guys offer, and what not a few of the prosperity gospel teachers themselves have. But the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, and those who teach it have wandered away from the truth. And so, as we kind of move through this, if you are listening to that kind of teaching, then I would want to warn you against it, and I can give you lots more reasons why if you're interested. We want to avoid that kind of disastrous teaching like we would avoid gangrene. We want to cut it out of our lives 
like we would cut off a gangrenous limb. But the reason it's so tempting is because, well, all of us want to be healthy, don't we? All of us would probably like a little bit more money, be helpful to meet the bills and maybe go on that holiday that we'd really like, visit those places we'd like to see. Uh, The faithful Bible teacher, R.C. Sproul, he says this. He says, look, in our hearts, we all believe the prosperity gospel. And you know it because whenever anything goes wrong in your life, you get angry. Why am I ill? Why did my friend die? Why did my business fail? What did I do to upset God? We ask. We all show that we don't really believe in the fallenness of the world, that the world is a broken place, and that Christians and non-Christians will suffer alike in this world, unrelated to whether or not we live good lives or not. And we show that we don't really believe the fallenness of humanity. We don't really believe what we profess every week as we come here, that we are sinners. We confess that we are sinners, that we deserve nothing from God. We don't believe that all the good things we have are purely by grace alone. That's what R.C. Sproul says. In our hearts, we all operate by default on that prosperity gospel method. And that's why we need to be guarded against false teachings, because they're attractive. They wouldn't be effective if they weren't attractive. Jesus speaks of false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in wolves' clothing are easy to spot. They look like wolves. The reason that false teachers are effective is because they come in sheep's clothing. They will say some good things alongside the false things, but we need to avoid them. Just as the ancient Israelites needed to be guarded in their day, and that's the slightly strange kind of uh, quotes that Paul pops in here, Uh, verse 19, these quotes are from Numbers chapter 16. Paul writes this, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Well, in number 16, uh, so they've escaped from Egypt, Moses has led them out into the wilderness, and then there's a couple of guys who start causing trouble. Um, Two guys called Korah and Dathan, they're the ringleaders uh, of a little rebellion against Moses. And they say, look, Moses, what's so special about you? Why are you God's mouthpiece? God should be speaking through us as well. We're all kind of special as well. And you think, well, it's not too bad a message, is it? It's quite subtle. But Paul would say, to use his words here in 2 Timothy, he'd say that Korah and Dathan were leading the people into more and more ungodliness. And their message is effective. We're told that over 250 of the leading people in Israel follow Korah and Dathan. And so the Lord says, look, I'm going to show those who are his. That quote there, the Lord knows those who are his. I'm going to show those who are mine, God says. Separate away from Korah and Dathan. So you've got Korah and Dathan and the guys following them standing over here. And the faithful Israelites are to separate out from them, stand apart from them. And then the earth opens up and swallows Korah and Dathan making it very clear who is God's and who is not, who does not belong to God. God says, have nothing to do with them. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness, including dissociating from false teachers, having nothing to do with those false teachers. And that is what this next illustration about the house 
and the articles is about. Again, it seems a bit confusing on first pass. Suddenly, Paul starts talking about household management. Uh, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. And you think, strange, okay, Paul's talking about our, our serving dishes, those for noble purposes, and our cleaning cupboard, those for ignoble purposes, you know, your mop and your bucket and that sort of thing. And then Paul says, verse 21, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, your mop and bucket, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, your gold and silver serving dish or whatever it is, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Well, the household is the household of God, i.e. the church, the visible community of God. And within what presents itself as the visible community of God, those who would say they're Christians, those who would say they're a part of a church, there are some vessels, some articles, some people who are people for noble use, the faithful teachers. And there are some who are people for ignoble use, the unfaithful teachers. And Paul says to Timothy, if you are a faithful teacher, you need to make it clear, separate yourself away from the teaching of these people and we'll see when we come back to 2 Timothy, a little way off in the future, even separating yourself off from the people themselves, making it clear that you have nothing to do with them. But here he's saying, make sure that it's clear that you are not associated with their false teaching. Make it clear that he has nothing to do with them. And to not operate in the same way that they do. So verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Faithful teachers are not to be uh, sort of quick-tempered um, or, or angry. So flee evil desires, um, probably not what you might think initially. Uh, one of the commentators puts it this way, um, partiality, intolerance, quickness of temper, self-assertion, and the like. These are the characteristics he writes of headstrong young men. So, there you go, make of that what you will. I, the kind of guys that Timothy is training up, they're not to be individualists. They're not to be out there by themselves, kind of, you know, arguing with everybody. But they're to be careful, thoughtful. He's, we're told, gently correcting their opponents. Well, as we close, let's ground this in practicality. When I asked that question at the beginning, when is it right to call out false teachers, I imagine some people thought, Oh, I don't know. I'm a bit uncomfortable with that idea. Maybe never. And then others possibly thought, yeah, you know, get them, you know, name them, cause trouble, get in there. Because we're all sort of on that personality spectrum somewhere. Some of us are more sort of aggressive and some of us are gentler. And so if you're the kind of person who's sitting here this morning thinking, I could never speak to someone and say what you believe is wrong and you need to stop believing it then perhaps Paul might be saying to you today, gently, that sometimes correcting someone is the right thing to do. Sometimes correcting someone is the most loving thing to do. Sometimes it's the most godly thing to do. A few years back, um, the Left Behind series was very popular, Left Behind series of novels. I'm not recommending them to you. They're a little bit random, but I thought I'll read the first one just to, to see what's going on here. And there are some good bits in there. There was a really interesting line where the main character, he's become a Christian, and his daughter is not a Christian. And they've already got a bit of a strained relationship. And so he's worried about speaking to her about Jesus because he doesn't want to strain that relationship further. And you get a bit of his inner monologue 
And he says this. He says, I don't want to offend her. But even more than that, I don't want to unoffend her into hell by not saying anything. I don't want to offend her, but I don't want to unoffend her into hell by leaving her on the path that she's going and saying nothing. For some of us, Paul's instruction might be that the right thing to do is speak gently, lovingly, but to speak. On the other hand, if we're at the other end and we love confrontation and we love you know, pointing out when people are wrong and we love to be right, then perhaps to us Paul is saying don't quarrel about words. Have nothing to do with stupid and ignorant controversies. If on a particular occasion with a particular person after prayer and time and consideration, your conscience does tell you that it is time to speak, then do so gently in the hope that God may grant them repentance, not that you might bludgeon them into agreement. Well, there we go. That's potential applications to us. But in some ways, our primary application here is for Steve. He stands in that line of Paul to Timothy to faithful people to others to others to others down the generations to church leaders. And so we need to pray for our church leaders. We need to pray for Steve and all within our denomination and all the faithful Christian denominations that they would pilot that line that Steve would be a man who is able to gently correct us, that he would week by week be saying no more and no less than what God has said in his word. I think first and foremost, we should be thankful to God that that is what he does try to do. But pray that he'd pilot that difficult line between speaking but gentleness. I'm going to take a, a few moments now just of silence and think to yourself, which end of that spectrum are you on? Are you on the, the, the over-bold end, or are you possibly on the over-gentle end? Think about that. I'll give us 30 seconds or so, and then I'll pray. Father God, each of us is somewhere on that spectrum. Some of us we dive in too quickly, and some of us shrink back when possibly we should speak. Please help us to know ourselves and first and foremost, please help us to love others. Please help us to love people enough to speak when we should and love them enough to speak gently, not to justify ourselves, not to be right in our own eyes, but in order to keep ourselves and others on track for the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen.